So, we are in 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to talk about the order of the resurrection as we continue to move verse by verse through 1 Corinthians, the order of the resurrection. So, if you go ahead and find 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to pick it up in verse 20. If you are physically able to stand, would you stand with me as we read the word? 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, 1 Corinthians 15, 21, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he abolished all rule, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. May the Lord write his word upon our hearts. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this wonderful, incredible congregation of saints and new visitors who have come to this place to hear your word, to hear a word in a chapter about resurrection, about the timing of the resurrection. When will it happen? How long, Lord, until this great dilemma of death is finally vanquished? Oh, when we think of this subject of death, when we think about what's happened in our country Um, with tragedies, when we think about loved ones that we have said goodbye to, or at least see you later, this is the ultimate dilemma. And the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that it is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus, you said, because I live, you will live also. Paul said, why do any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead. Lord, you spoke the universe into existence. You hold it together by the word of your power. And you will raise your people to everlasting life. We have the down payment of that promise, the precious Holy Spirit who lives in us. And we look forward to a day when death will be no more, when you will wipe away every tear from our eyes. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more death. The former things will have passed away. Lord, help us to hold on to our faith. Help us to keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. May your word pour down like rain upon your people. May it bring growth and refreshment and strength. In Jesus' name and for your glory and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Sigmund Freud, who was the founder of psychiatry, wrote, And finally, there's the painful riddle of death for which no remedy at all has yet been found nor probably ever will be. 
close quote. Can you imagine if the universe was to go on forever with no end to death and no remedy to death? Do you know that there are people in our culture today, people who study in uh, universities and even the Bible has become their subject of a lifelong venture of study, the original languages, the history, the peoples of the Bible, who have tried to make a living by debunking the resurrection. And those of you who have looked at this subject before from an apologetic standpoint, that is to defend the historic view of resurrection, know that their attempts have failed miserably. They've tried to come up with swoon theories, and maybe Jesus had a twin, and maybe everybody who saw the risen Christ was having a mass hallucination. That's the best that they got. But the Bible emphatically is a story about resurrection. In fact, if you were to remove the resurrection from the New Testament accounts, the New Testament Testament itself would be mutilated It would make no sense. If you're a Christian today, you are a person who believes in the resurrection. Whether or not you know that, whether or not you've studied that in depth, that is what we believe. Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it again. And he did. He rose from the dead in the very history in which we are embedded. The empty tomb shouts to us, through the corridors of time, that because Christ lives, you will live also. Each of us have had to face these moments. I've had to face them many, many times as a pastor where I've walked with a family, sometimes in processional, often to a graveyard. Sometimes there's been a hole there. And that family member has had to deal with the reality of death. And it is a hard reality. But one time I remember I was at a cemetery and I told the people, I said, you know, that hole in the ground there, that hole is not the end of the story. That hole will become a doorway to life. The graveyard, death, does not have the final word. Jesus does. Because he's the author of life. Amen? You see, it was impossible for death to hold him. Because he's the prince of life. He spoke the universe into existence. He breathed life into Adam. And he is going to raise the dead. Those who are in the tombs are going to hear the voice of the Son of God. John chapter 5. And some will rise to a resurrection of life. And others to a resurrection of condemnation. The Bible is a story about a living Christ. A Christ who says, trust in me, even in the face of this terrible power of death itself. Freud and all others like him were wrong. And 1 Corinthians 15 is a power-packed chapter, an argument, an apologetic for the resurrection and its grand implications. Not one of you who have come into this place today or will hear my voice later are not impacted by this reality of the resurrection of Jesus and your response to the truth. Because if you believe that Jesus died and rose again, you will be saved. The gospel is incomplete without the empty tomb and the resurrection. 
Yes, we focus on a blood-stained cross, but that's not the end of the story. Friday happened, but Sunday morning was the coming. And the tomb was empty. And the angel said, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's alive, just like he told you he would be. And even the apostles, who couldn't believe it for joy, Jesus invited them, look at my hands, touch me and see. A spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And Thomas the doubter said, my Lord and my God. Thomas, blessed are you, you've, you've seen me and you've believed, but blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. And that's you and me. Jesus Christ is alive. And Paul is going to argue that since Jesus has been raised from the dead to all of those who are questioning the resurrection in Corinth and maybe even in Corona, there's a chronological order that exists between the resurrection of Christ and the last day's resurrection. Christ's resurrection cannot be viewed in isolation. It is a foretaste of what is ahead. Turn in your Bible to the book of Matthew, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Matthew 27. This is an incredible scene that happens uh, as Jesus pays the ransom price on the cross. Look at Matthew 27. There's all kinds of incredible events that surround the death and resurrection of Jesus. Matthew 27, verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, Matthew 27, 15, and yield up his spirit, yielded up his spirit. And behold, 27, 51 of Matthew, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. And the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city, and appeared to many. Turn back to 1 Corinthians 15. Now this particular text perplexes some people. They're like, what happened? Well, after Jesus was resurrected, there was a foretaste of coming attractions. And that is that many holy people, godly people, came out of their tombs and were raised. What happened to them afterwards? Something like Lazarus. They probably lived Maybe they were Christians in the first century and were raised as a foretaste and then died again like Lazarus. But they appeared to many people, and this was confirmation to that first century crowd that the resurrection has implications beyond just Jesus, as incredible as his resurrection is. It has a train. He's leading a train that follows him to life. And this ultimate dilemma of death will be dealt with. It's the last enemy that will be destroyed. It's not a question of if. It's a question of when. And that's what we all wonder. You know, some of us who have been living for quite some time and we hear about the second coming of Jesus Christ, you know, there's some days when we're like, come Lord Jesus, come! And there's other days where we're like, can you put it off for a couple of weeks? Things are pretty good right now. And then the next day, come Lord Jesus, the world's going to hell in a handbasket! Then you turn the news off. Ah, maybe it's not so bad. <laughs> and the reason is, is because we live in a fallen world. And we have glimpses of beauty and glory. We enjoy what God has given us. But we know that ultimately this place is still under a curse. 
There were some that were saying that that curse will never be remedied. And to say that there's no resurrection is really a mockery. It's a mockery of God. It's a mockery of Christ. It's a mockery of Old Testament saints, the disciples, and all Christians for all time. That's what last week was all about. How can you say there's no resurrection? If there's no resurrection, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then you're still in your sins. And we, of all people, should be most pitied. But we don't have to be pitied. Because Christ is alive. He is risen. He is risen indeed. I know it's August, but we can still celebrate the resurrection. It doesn't have to be Easter to get excited. See, verse 20 says, But now... 1520 of 1 Corinthians, but now Christ, what's your Bible say? Has been raised from the dead. And he is the first fruits of those who are asleep. Now, what does it mean for those who are asleep? Well, it means those have died. Look at uh, chapter 15, look at verse 6. It says, After that, he, Jesus, appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. Most of them whom remain until now, but some have what? Fallen asleep. Some are alive. Fallen asleep in the Christian thought is a way to depict believers who have died. The body looks like it's sleeping, but they have gone to be with the Lord. Look at verse 18. 1 Corinthians 15, 18 says, Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If there's no resurrection, then they who have died in Christ have perished. But, of course, we know they haven't. We know in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8, it says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And some of you may be wondering, well, what happens in the interim? If there's a time when there is going to be a resurrection and rapture, what happens in the interim time? What if I've lost a loved one in Christ? Where are they now? Job, who goes through his terrible suffering, even ask that question, where are they? Where, you could say it this way, where are my children that died when the roof collapsed in the house? Where are they? And that's answered in the New Testament when we see verses like to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. Here's a good illustration. Imagine that you were driving in your car and you got in a terrible accident and you walked away but your car was totaled. In one sense, your car would end up in some sort of car graveyard or junkyard. Your car will be totaled, but you walked away from it. Your body is simply a vehicle for your soul. Your body, at one point, should the Lord tarry, should He not come in our lifetime, your body will, will be totaled. <laughs> Can I get a... Oh, maybe not. Don't say amen to that. What do you mean I'm going to be totaled? Total bummer, man. Right? But we all know we're moving toward the day when the sticker will be applied, totaled. <laughs> and we're going to end up in a place, but a place that anticipates resurrection or renewal. The car is going to get a makeover. But in this case, the car is a poor analogy because it's going to, we're going to live and we're never going to die again. The guarantee that the body will be awake, awakened in the resurrection of Jesus. The spirit is with the Lord, but the body looks like it's sleeping until that day of resurrection. Jesus, notice in verse 20, is called the first fruits.
But now Christ has been raised from the dead, and he is the first fruits of those who are asleep. I just want to mention before I get into the idea of first fruits that Jesus Christ said these words. Write this down for your notes. This is Mark 10, 33 and 34. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, Jesus, will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and will deliver him to the Gentiles or the Romans. And they will mock him, Mark 10, 34, spit upon him, scourge him, and kill him. And three days later, Jesus says, he will rise again. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not a literal bodily resurrection from the dead, then Jesus lied. But he prophesied his own death and resurrection in detail. Therefore, any scholar that you see on some channel who's pontificating or waxing elephants, as it were, waxing eloquent, never mind, Oh, the resurrection is simply a metaphor. Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. It's a metaphor for a deeper message of the struggle between the Jews and the Romans and that the Jewish nation would rise. The resurrection is an account of a clinically dead body that came out of the tomb alive. Enough with the nonsense. Enough. Because if the resurrection is not true, then Jesus was not telling the truth. The prophecy is wrong. He's a false prophet, and you can't follow him. But the fact that he prophesied his resurrection and then backed it up is one of the reasons why I'm a follower of Jesus. I ain't seen anybody else doing that. Amen? You kill me, and in three days, I'm going to rise. And he did it. And even his enemies had to try to pay off the guards to say that the disciples stole the body. Spurgeon says, if Jesus rose, then the gospel is what it professes to be. If he rose not from the dead, then it is all deceit and delusion. I would just say it this way. Go do something else. If there's no resurrection, I love you all. Maybe we'll meet at the beach. (laughs) You know? But if there is a resurrection, if Christ is alive, it means everything. That's why scholars, theologians will tell you that this is the bedrock of Christianity, that Jesus is alive. And this is why the resurrection gets attacked so often. And do you realize what people are doing to themselves by trying to debunk the resurrection? They seal their own doom. Think about it. Now, they can't debunk it. But in attempting to debunk it, they pour more dirt on their own graves. Now, I'm not telling you to believe in the resurrection because it just gives mankind some hope without, you know, it's some pie in the sky, not real. I'm saying to you that people who try to debunk it seal their own fate, and they're going to stand before the risen Lord. And guess what? Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead. Can you imagine that person? I wrote yes, several books to try to debunk your resurrection, but you look alive to me. Oh, yes. Do you know that the man that wrote 1 Corinthians did not believe in Jesus? He was Saul. He was going on his way to destroy the church. And then he saw a bright light and got knocked off his donkey or his horse or whatever he was riding. And he fell to the ground. And Jesus talked to Paul, or Saul, 
Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Uh oh. What must I do, Lord? Get up, and you'll be told what you must do. And the great Saul had to be led by the hand. He was blinded by the light, but never did he see as he saw on that day. Amen. Jesus is the living Lord. And the man who opposed the gospel became its greatest spokesman. That means there's hope for all of us. Even if you've been anti-Christian, even if you've told your friends, I don't believe that stuff. Maybe you grew up in the church and you got to a point where you said, I no longer believe that story. And Maybe you're coming back around and you're like, you know what? I think it's true. There's still hope for you. Christ is the first fruits. The Greek word is aparke. In the Septuagint, the uh, Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, the word is used for the offering of first fruits. In secular usage, the word was used for an entrance fee. Because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, he is the first fruits of those who are asleep. This reference is specific to those who have fallen asleep in Christ. This is a guarantee that the body will be awakened. Paul had in mind, says one writer, the first sheaf of the barley harvest, Leviticus 23.10. When God accepted the first fruits, they became the earnest or guarantee that the rest of the crop would be harvested. Christ himself is the first fruits. Jesus is the promise, the assurance, the hope that those who are asleep in Jesus will rise. This is an Old Testament image of the first installment of a crop, which anticipates and guarantees the ultimate offering of the whole crop. In the Septuagint, the concept of first fruits applies to offerings, Exodus 23, 16, and 34, 22. Taxes, Exodus 25, 2, and 3, and even children, Genesis 49, 3. Jesus is the first fruits. In the Old Testament, offering of first fruits brought one sheaf. They brought one sheaf of grain to represent and anticipate the rest of the harvest. If you want to read more on this, read Leviticus 23, 9 through 14. The resurrection of Jesus represents, here's the key word, and anticipates our resurrection. Because we have been united together in the likeness of Jesus' death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, Romans 6, 5. The resurrection of Jesus anticipates our resurrection because we will be raised with a body like his. Trapp says, as in the first fruits offered to God, the Jews were assured of God's blessing on the whole harvest, so by the resurrection of Christ, our own resurrection is ensured. Close quote. I'm reading a little bit from my notes so you can get a grasp of this idea. The idea of first fruits is referenced seven times in the New Testament. Paul uses the term in Romans 8.23 and 11.16 to refer to the first and representative part. In 1 Corinthians 16.15 and Romans 16.5, it refers to the first converts of a region, the household of Stephanus in Corinth and Epinatus in Asia. Thus, the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, the household of Stephanus, are the first fruits of a given geographical area, which means not only that they are the first converts, but the first of a much larger harvest is yet to be realized. Remember, when you read your Bible, you're reading a setting of an agrarian culture, very much steeped in farming and agriculture. So the first fruits for them were the first promise of a harvest. They would look for the sheaf that looked like it was the, the most ripe, if you will. 
and they would mark it. And do you know how they would mark that first sheaf that would be waved before God in the temple? They would mark it with a red cord. They would go out and find it, and then they would wave it before the Lord or present the first fruits, everybody with me, the first of the crop that promised that the full harvest would come in. God would say, you give me the first fruits, I'll take care of the rest. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. How many of you, even in giving your money to the work of the kingdom, you've struggled a little bit? You know, uh, a guy came up to the pulpit, he was sharing a testimony, he said, you know, I've become a Christian and I'm trying to learn how to give of my first fruits. And somebody said, 10% is a good place to start. He said, honestly, I've started with five. I just want to see how that goes. <laughs> Look, there's no law about 10%. We're, we're free in Christ, right? We open up our hands and we say, Lord, put in and take out as you would will. But there is this principle of first fruits. I give my first and best to God. Like the farmer who had two cows and he said to his wife, Oh, uh, honey, I've decided I'm going to give one of the cows to the Lord. Oh, great. Well, the next day, one of the cows had keeled over and died. And the wife came out and said to her husband, What happened? And he said, the Lord's cow died. <laughs> and what do we do, right? We say, oh, this old shirt. or Yeah, I'll give that blanket away. Has God ever challenged you to give your first and best? And you're like, <laughs> I was going to go to Coco's after service. It's my last $10. I was going to go to In-N-Out. Forget about Coco's. I was going to go to In-N-Out. Miguel's. Should I? Offering back comes by. <laughs> then a friend of yours says, let's go to Miguel's. I'm buying. I'm like, oh. First fruits. First burrito. <laughs> Have you ever just given something away? Like, maybe you had something in your wallet and you're hanging on to it and you had a thought attached to it and you gave it away and the Lord just blessed you beyond measure. Amen. This is the idea of the first fruits. It's offered to God guaranteeing the rest. Revelation 14, 4 says the 144,000 are first fruits, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. James 1.18 says of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. First fruits conveys that Christ's resurrection is the first of a kind, involving the rest in character and destiny, says Perry. That is why Paul says that Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. His resurrection guarantees the rest of the harvest. Everybody with me? He rose. And he guarantees that the rest of us are going to rise again. His resurrection is a pledge. Much like the Holy Spirit is a pledge of our future redemption. Do you know that the Holy Spirit being a pledge is a modern Greek word which means an engagement ring? And when you give an engagement ring to somebody, you're saying, will you what? Will you marry me? They put the ring on, they say, yes, I will commit to you and you to me. This ring represents a promise of a covenant. 
The Holy Spirit is God's down payment. If you want to know if God will finish what he started, his spirit in you is the guarantee that he will finish what he started to the day of redemption. This is the idea of first fruits. It also has the idea of earnest money, down payment, or a guarantee. Paul has in mind the first fruits of the barley harvest. I mentioned the red cord. Listen to this. About the time that Caiaphas the high priest was trying Jesus, the servants of the Sanhedrin were in the barley field judging the crop to decide what would be harvested for first fruits by the marking with the red cord. Until they harvested and offered the barley sheaf or omer in the temple, the rest of the crops were not deemed kosher, lawfully fit, or acceptable. On the day the Romans were binding Jesus for crucifixion, the disciples of the Sanhedrin were binding up the, the barley sheaf for the first fruits. This process was done on the day after the weekly Sabbath, which fell on the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Interestingly enough, when the wheat is harvested in the late spring, a man who's threshing the wheat stands on a large board, which has bits of glass underneath it. It is pulled by a horse over the wheat to do the crushing. The board is called by a Latin word, tribulum, trouble, pressure. Do you know that this whole scene that Jesus dies on the Passover, is buried on unleavened bread, and rises on the feast of first fruits, is all a picture of God saying, my son is the guarantee of the rest of the harvest. And they were marking it on the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, wrapping the sheave, Jesus is wrapped in a linen cloth. Marked with the blood of the cross. And on the first Feast of first fruits, they wave, they present to God, and God guarantees the rest of the harvest. He said, because you give the first to me, I will promise you the rest. Verse 21. <laughs> you guys are really used to that, aren't you? You say, he's done one verse. He's back. <laughs> I feel you. We're going to move a little faster, all right? For since by a man, 21, 1 Corinthians 15, came death, by a man, Jesus is the God-man, 100% God, 100% man, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. Christ's resurrection is not a merely isolated, miraculous event, but one that has sweeping consequences, just as Adam and Eve's fall in the garden had sweeping consequences. Everybody with me? When Adam and Eve fell, the rest of mankind was plunged into death. For the soul that sins will surely die. All have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is what? It's death. But... The free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. See, our problem started in the garden. Adam fell. He did not obey God. And the analogy assumes human solidarity with those at the beginning of the line who then become the representative of those who follow. Adam leads the way and represents the old order. All those bound to Adam share his banishment from Eden his alienation from God, and his fate of death. Sometimes we, maybe in a service like this, someone has passed away, and 
I've often said, do you know why we die to people? Do you know why we die? And I can see blank stares from people, and I say we die because of sin. The wages of sin is death. That's why people are dying all around us. Well, what's the remedy to this sin problem? He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is the remedy to this ultimate issue. Adam led the train to death. Christ leads the train to life. I ask you, have you punched your ticket? Because if you're only in Adam and you're not in Christ, you're going to die. And that death will be a first and second death. But the good news is that the God-man has overthrown death. Flip ahead for uh, just a preview. Look at uh, chapter 15, verse 45. 45, chapter 15 says, So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. 46. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy, that's Adam. The second man is from heaven, that's Christ. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. And just as we have borne the image of the earthy, Adam, we also, we shall also, we, the church, shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Adam is the issue. Adam and Eve. Verse 22, chapter 15. For as in Adam all what? All die. Does anybody get out of this? Some of you are thinking, well, there's a couple exceptions. Enoch walked with God and he was not because God took him. True. And then Elijah, right? He went up to God. True. But other than those two? <laughs> which are exceptions, which are pictures, if you will. And some even believe they'll come back in the last days. Enoch and Elijah, perhaps, are the two witnesses. That's one view. Not my view, but one view. Death spread to all people. Nobody, what's the saying? People wake up, they have a little bit of coffee. Two things you can know about this world. Death and taxes. Life is hard, bumper sticker, and then you die. <laughs> Thanks, Schleprock. <laughs> Thanks, Eeyore. Life is hard, and then you die. It's not much of a tale, but it's the only one I've got. <laughs> Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, and I, and I, and I understand that. So Winnie the Pooh thing. If you're only in Adam, you're in trouble. But if you're in Christ, you'll be made alive. According to Barrett, in Adam would imply that humans have taken Adam's side. They have joined the revolt against God, and for this reason, they die. You see, all mankind follows in the train of Adam. If you're not in Christ, you're suppressing the truth. You're pushing it away. But the last Adam, Jesus, came to bring us 
life. To undo the mess of the first Adam. To stand between the serpent and his bride in the Garden of Gethsemane and say, if it's me you want, let them go. Father, of those you have given me, I lost none. They're going to see my glory. Now Paul gave us the timing in 1 Thessalonians 4. Would you flip over there? 1 Thessalonians 4, when he's talking about, okay, well, when will this happen? Those who are asleep, when will they rise? Take a look. 1 Thessalonians 4, famous rapture passage, verse 13. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep or those who have died, so that you will not grieve as the rest who have no hope. 1 Thessalonians 4, 14. For if we believe Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep or died in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will what? They will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain, still alive at this point in history, will be caught up, that's the idea of raptured, together with them, that's the dead who are resurrected, in the clouds, probably glory clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, what should we do? Comfort one another with these words. Back to 1 Corinthians 15. The power of death is broken. Donald Gray Barnhouse, widowed at a young age, the death of his wife left him with a six-year-old daughter in the home. He had real difficulty working through his own grief, but the hardest part was to comfort and explain the death to his daughter. He later record, recalled that all his education, theological training, left him at a loss. One day, he and the little girl were standing on a busy corner at a downtown intersection waiting for a light to change. Suddenly, a very large truck sped by the corner, briefly blocking out the sun and frightening the little girl. To comfort her, Dr. Barnhouse picked her up, and in a moment, the wisdom of God broke through, and he was able to explain to his daughter. He said, sweetie, when you saw the truck pass, it scared you. But let me ask you, had you rather be struck by the truck or the shadow of the truck? She replied, of course, the shadow, Daddy, of course. He went on to explain that when your mother died, she was only hit by the shadow of death because Jesus was hit by the truck of death. The psalmist reminds us that God is with us even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Paul is not teaching universalism. He's not saying everybody will be made alive. If you look closely at your Bible, it says those who are in Christ. You must be in Christ to experience this life. If you're in Adam, all die. So in Christ, all will be made alive. Verse 23, but each in his own order. There's an order to the resurrection, and that's what we're after today. Christ, the first fruits. We got that imagery as we spoke about it earlier. After that, those who are Christ, when are they going to rise? At, this is verse 23, chapter 15. At his, what? Coming. The resurrection will happen at the second coming of Jesus Christ. And that, brothers and sisters, in my view, is a singular coming. And I know there are some people, good 
scholars who believe there's a rapture seven years before or three and a half years before, and then there's a uh, final coming of the Lord. And I think they would tie the resurrection to that seven years before. But I'm going to tell you from my study of the Bible, I think this is one event. When Christ comes for the second time, the dead rise first, and the living also are raptured. And here's how it works. Resurrection and rapture pretty much happen like this. We will not go before the dead in Christ. It will be like this to meet the Lord in the air. It's going to be, if you will, almost a simultaneous event. Resurrection and rapture go together. When? At the second coming. That's when it's going to happen. Some of you have seen movies about the rapture, right? And some of the movies will show, uh, you know, somebody walks home, comes home from work, and on the bed, there's a tie and a shirt there without a body in it. Ah! Right? And, and there's unmanned planes. And in case of rapture, this automobile will have no driver. Well, I tell you, I'm not sure that that's how it's going to happen. I don't, I don't know that we're going to have a secret rapture. This is something you're going to have to wrestle with. I think when Jesus appears in the darkened sky with all the angels, there's going to be two responses. One is going to be, oh, yeah! And another is going to be, uh-oh. And I hope you're in the, oh, yeah, crowd. Amen? Because when Jesus comes, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, that's when death dies. We will never die again. Some of you are saying, but is Jesus the first fruits? What about the widow's son in the days of Elijah? What about Lazarus? What about others that Jesus raised from the dead? Well, Jesus is the first fruits in this sense. He's the one that was resurrected never to die again. Death will not touch Jesus ever again. Lazarus came out of the tomb, got unwrapped, had a piece of toast and some OJ. But he lived and what? Died again. Jesus is the first fruits in this sense. He leads a train of folks in military rank is the idea. That's the idea of order never to die again. When will this happen, you ask? At his second coming. Oh, I got to show you a few verses about this end times. Go to Matthew 13. This is, I hope it excites you. Matthew 13. It excites me. Matthew 13. Jesus is telling a a parable, Matthew 13, about the end times. Here's what he says. Matthew 13, 37. He said, following the parable of the sower or soils, the one, Matthew 13, 37, who sows the good seed is the son of man, Jesus. The field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. The tares are the sons of the evil one. 39. The enemy who sowed them is the devil, The harvest is what? The end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Think of first fruits imagery. Therefore, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with the fire, so it shall be at the end of the age. What is the sign of your coming in the end of the age? The apostles asked in Matthew 24, 3. The Son of Man will send forth his angels. They're the reapers. They reap the harvest. And they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. We'll cast them into the furnace of fire. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. All the way over to Matthew 24. In the famous Olivet Discourse, the disciples said, What will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Jesus answers their question in Matthew 24. Look at verse 29. Matthew 24, 29. Here's the sign of the end of the age. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, 24, 29, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man, Jesus, will appear in the sky when the natural lights have gone out. Then all the tribes of the earth will what? They will mourn. That's the uh uh-oh crowd. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. (laughs) I heard a kid say, he heard this text and he said, Mommy, Mommy, Jesus is coming with power and great glory. No, well, maybe, (laughs) but it's power and great glory, okay? And he will send forth his angels, 31 Matthew 24, with a great trumpet, and they will what? Gather together, here's the rest of the harvest, his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other, apparently... We're going to get an angelic escort on the day of resurrection and rapture. I'm hoping Michael picks me up. I'm hoping. Come on in. (laughs) Custom-made heavenly automobile. I don't know what it's going to look like. Back to the future. I don't know. All right, go back to 1 Corinthians 15. (laughs) Oh, we got to move. We got to move. Then comes the end. When he delivers up the kingdom to the God and Father when he has abolished all rule, all authority, and power. The devil's time will come to an end when Jesus comes again. See, Christ is the first fruits. Then those, the rest of the harvest of resurrection will occur at his second coming. The Greek word for coming is parousia or parousia. Some of you have heard that word before. It does imply the arrival of a a leader and his active presence. And so Jesus, when he comes, will rescue and raise and rapture his church. Then comes the end, 24. When he delivers up the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. We know if we've read Revelation that the devil will be vanquished. The lawless one, the Antichrist, will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. 2 Thessalonians 2.8, his parousia at the end of the age. The God of this age will be vanquished, the Antichrist defeated. For Jesus, he must reign until he has put how many? All his enemies under his feet. One day, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, this is how the world or the age will wrap up. The last enemy that will be abolished or destroyed is death. The grim reaper is going to meet his own demise. How many of you have seen the, the, 
depictions of the Grim Reaper. He has that, that reaping thing. Whatever, what do you call that thing? He has a, he's got a sickle. Thank you. And he's got the hood on. And everybody fears the Grim Reaper. One day, the Grim Reaper will meet his Grim Reaper. Can you imagine that? <laughs> Take his hood off. No! You're going to see a picture of him with an X through it. He is no more. Death has died. What? Yes. He's going to meet his end. In this world where it surrounds us, where people are live in fear of death all of their lives, the gospel is the remedy. It's the salve. Now it's been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. He has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. 2 Timothy 1.10 Honey, we were listening to um, the guy out, out of Idaho who lost his daughter. Um, I can't think of his name. Uh, through the eyes of a lion. Oh, Levi Lesko. Levi Lesko. And he was talking about um, his daughter. Um, she had an asthma attack and passed away in his arms. And uh, he said as a family in their unspeakable grief of losing a little girl at such a young age, they, they made a decision to not run away, but to run to God and to face their grief in the light of the promises of God. And I tell you, as you hear Levi Lesko talk about the loss of his daughter, you're like, wow. But he said, we, we decided to run to God and to face it in the light of the promises of God. And the verse that God gave him was, Jesus has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The Son of God appeared for this purpose that he might destroy the work of the devil, 1 John 3, verse 8. This is the hope we have, folks. For he has put all things, 27, in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. It might help to read the NIV. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this not, does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. Everything except the one true God has been subjected to Christ. And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself, Jesus, also will be subjected to the one who has subjected all things to him, that God may be all and in all. In laying out the teaching of the Trinity, Paul has never departed from monotheism, says one writer. The exaltation of the Son was never to make him out as a second God, but that in Christ the one God has turned his attention to the world. Some of you have the MacArthur Study Bible. I think he gives a helpful note here because some of you may struggle with how this works. And it's a bit of a mystery, but here's what he says. He says in verse 28, text note, Christ will continue to rule because his reign is eternal, Revelation eleven fifteen, But he will reign in his former full and glorious place within the Trinity, subject to God or God the Father in the way eternally designed for him in full Trinitarian glory. Because the Son submits to his Father does not mean that he's inferior to his Father, but he does always does those things that what? Please his Father. And here's the imagery, and this falls short, but here's what comes to mind as we 
complete this study. If you've ever seen this happen, let's say someone wins the Heisman Trophy. And they have an incredible year on the, on the field and they go up to a podium and they receive this coveted trophy. And they might say something like this. I, I have worked my whole life to do this, but the, the person who made this possible, let's just say, he says, was my father. He poured into me, he gave me a vision for this, and dad, this is for you. And let's say he hands dad the trophy or the trophy is going to go to dad. One day Jesus is going to say, Father, my death on the cross, my resurrection from the dead, and this multitude of the harvest coming into the kingdom to join us in our glory, I did this for you, for your honor. And as the father honors the son, so the son honors the father. I don't know how all that's going to look in glory, but I'm looking forward to it. As he presents his bride spotless before his father, washed by the blood of Jesus. In raising Jesus Christ from the dead, God has set in motion a chain of events that must culminate, says Gordon Fee, in the final destruction of death and thus of God's being once again as in eternity past, all in all. Father, thank you for your great and glorious promises in Jesus Christ. They are yes and amen. Thank you because Jesus lives, we will live. Jesus, what can we say? You decided to come to this earth and humble yourself. You, you became a man, took on human limitation. You lived, you touched so many you spoke like no man ever spoke. And you lived your life in the shadow of the cross. You predicted your own death, but also your resurrection. The Gospel of John says you loved your own to the very end. And as we saw in 1 Corinthians 13, when the perfect comes, love will endure and you will love us forever. Even when we die, you will still be by our side. I will never let you go. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And your, your scarred hands, your scarred side, will forever, the holes in your feet, the scars in your feet, will forever testify of your love for your people. If you've not met this God of love and truth, the one who entered into our pain, died in our place, defeated death, looked death in the eye and said, you ain't gonna win. I've come to rescue my people. Do you know him? Just you keep your head and heart bowed? And if you don't know him, you're not sure, you wanna rededicate your life, you wanna come home, you must cry out to him and you must make a decision, a decision of your will. He calls you by the gospel, he woos you by his spirit, but you and I must respond. Something like this, it can be very simple. Jesus, would you pray it right now if it's you? Jesus, please save me. I believe that you entered this world to die on that terrible cross. I believe that you did defeat death just like you said. I believe that you're alive. And I'm asking you to be my Lord and my Savior, my God and my King. Pray it if it's you. I turn from my sin 
turn away from the false gods, the idols, my own self-effort, and I place my full trust in you. Be my Lord, be my Savior. Lead me and guide me to what you want my life to be, that I might redeem it for my risen Savior. Father, for those who are opening their hearts, maybe for the first time, maybe rededicating themselves to the gospel, to the Lord, I pray you bless them. Your beautiful face will shine upon them. You'll strengthen them, encourage them, and keep them strong in the faith. In Jesus' name and all God's people said.